I asked you last week to consider the question, how do you envision the world being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do you envision the world being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I went on to say that sadly some Christians are not preoccupied with that thought. Some Christians do not often think about how the world is going to be reached with the saving gospel, the saving message of Jesus Christ. It's hard for me to fathom, but there are some Christians who are not preoccupied with that thought. Others, other Christians hope and pray that the gospel will go forth, that it will go forth with power and with deep conviction, that it will bring about conversion to those who hear it and receive it. But those Christians who pray that hope that someone else will take that gospel there. That someone else will preach that gospel there. And then sadly, even a smaller number of Christians ask themselves this question. What role can I play? What responsibility can I take in making sure the nations hear the gospel? Which one are you? Which Christian are you, friends? I hope you haven't been able to get this out of your mind this week. That about every second, 1.7 people, almost 2 people, statistically, step into a Christless eternity. And you and I, as redeemed believers, have been given the holy privilege but also the great high responsibility of taking the gospel to the nations. Taking the gospel to those who have never heard. Let's turn our attention to our text this morning, which again we will use very loosely. Let me encourage you to stand. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is where we'll hang our thoughts for this morning. These are the words of King Jesus, and this is what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. If you've been worshiping with us over the last three weeks, you'll remember that I have given you a handful of we believe statements each week. I gave you three uh, the first week, I gave you two last week, I'm going to give you three again this week. A total of eight statements uh, that we will use to break our vision statement down as a local church. Our vision statement is simply this, we exist, Cape Bible Chapel exists, why? To be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission to make and multiply disciples of Christ, where? In our neighborhoods, among the nations, and of the next generation. That's where we're going to camp this morning. We're going to talk about the phrase, make and multiply disciples in our neighborhoods, among the nations, and of the next generation. I'm going to give you three corresponding, we believe, statements this morning to guide our time. I'll be heavy 
on point number three, lighter on point number one and two. That's by design. If you're taking notes, would encourage you to write this down. Point number one, we believe here at the chapel that God has called us to intentionally reach our neighborhoods by living and proclaiming the gospel in winsome ways. We as a local church believe that God has called us to intentionally, that is by design, not by default, but by design, intentionally reach our neighborhoods. That's where we live. That's the context in which we reside. How are we going to do that? By living and proclaiming the gospel in winsome ways. Let me ask you this, friends. Who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Everybody rock your head back and forth like this. That's the answer. The answer is yes. The answer to the question, who is your neighbor, is yes. Anyone with whom you have relational contact is your neighbor. That could be physical neighbors that reside around the place where you live. It could be coworkers. It could be family. It could be friends. It could be people with whom you share a common interest. It could be people that share a common place that you frequent. The gym, for instance. A park, for instance. Who is your neighbor? The answer is yes. Everyone that has a pulse with whom you are relationally connected is your neighbor. Remember how Jesus responded when asked which commandment was the most important of all? How did Jesus respond? He responded, first of all, by pointing us vertically, and second of all, by pointing us horizontally. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second greatest commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love first vertically, love second as a result or out of an overflow horizontally. Love for God always results in a love for others who are made in God's image. A love for God always results in a love for others whom God has made, fashioned, created in his own likeness and image. How are we going to do that as a local church? Well, I think just to be clear here, we want to be salt and light. Many of you probably remember our not-too-distant study of the Sermon on the Mount. And back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus calls us to be those two things to the world in which we live. We're to be salt, to be salty in the world in which we live. What does salt do? What is salt's function? Well, salt's function is to retard decay and to bring about the tastefulness of a food item. We know that our world is decaying around us. I mean, all you need to do is to turn on the nightly news or to read the morning newspaper to know that our world is spiraling downward. I mean, there is a moral morass that exists just outside these doors. We're to be salty to them. We're to be salty to the world. To be an agent of change, to retard decay, that our, our lives, the way that we live, and the gospel, the message that we proclaim, would be salty in the world in which we live. But secondly, that we would be light. That we would shine brightly for the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would point people 
to the way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Interpretation, Jesus said, you can't go around me, you can't go under me, you can't go over me, you must come through me. There is no other way. Friends, our message is exclusive. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. But at the same time, it is inclusive in the sense that Jesus said, all who will come. And so that is our message as we live and reside in this community. All who will come, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Leave the saving work to the Savior, but the proclaiming work has been entrusted to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I would point you there if you're looking for a good text to study this coming week. Paul tells us there that we are ambassadors. What do ambassadors do? Well, ambassadors speak for the sovereign of a country or a nation. That's what we are. We are ambassadors for Christ. Paul goes on and he says, and we as ambassadors urge or implore or beg the world around us to repent and believe, to trust Christ, to turn from their sin, and to put all their hope in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's what it means to be light. It means to be an ambassador. In another place, Paul called us heralds of the gospel. We don't operate this way anymore because not many of us, in proportion, receive a printed copy of news in comparison to those of us that receive a digital copy of news. But it wasn't too long ago that you would see a young man standing on the street corner and and he would have the newspaper and he would say what? Extra, extra, read all about it. Do you know what that young man was called? A herald. He was a herald for the news. Likewise, we're not only ambassadors, but we are heralds. Harking forth the good news of the gospel. That salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Friends, how are we doing at that? Would our neighbors know? Literally, the people that live to our right and our left, whether you live in a home or an apartment or wherever you live, with the people that live right above you, right below you, right to the right of you, right to the left of you, know anything about your Jesus. They know anything about your conversion. Do they know anything about where your hope is found? Oftentimes, because of fear, we, we take the light that we're called to be, and what do we do with it? We hide it, right? For fear, fear of rejection, fear of not knowing what to say, fear of how we'll be treated, what people will think about us, what they'll say about us. And so we take the light and we hide it, right? Jesus has called us to be salt and to be light. Light exposes. Light lights up the darkness. It reveals what is there. And in doing so, points individuals to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, we are to shine like stars. He says, do all things without grumbling or complaining so that you may be blameless, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's the world we live in, right? A crooked and twisted generation. But then Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 2 and he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. How are we doing there? 
at being salt and being light. Friends, you may have heard this statement. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Friends, I would tell you that as pithy as that may sound on the surface, it is a completely unbiblical statement. It's a completely unbiblical statement. It's long been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but it's doubtful from his other writings if he ever made such a statement. However it originated, it's intended to say that proclaiming the gospel by example is in some way more virtuous than actually proclaiming the gospel with voice. Unfortunately, that quote creates an unnecessary, unbiblical dichotomy between speech and action. It's a dichotomy that your Bibles do not present to you. The gospel is inherently verbal, and preaching the gospel is an inherently verbal activity. Furthermore, Paul tells us that faith comes by what? Hearing. Yeah, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Yes, friends, we are to live the gospel. To not do so is to deny the very gospel you say you believe. We must live it. It must be evident in the things that we say, in the places that we go, in the places that we don't go, in the decisions that we make, in the way that we speak, in our actions. The gospel that we say we believe and hold dear must be evident. And we all fail there at times. Every single one of us without exception fails at displaying the gospel to the lost around us. We screw it up sometimes. Matter of fact, there are there are guys with whom I'm engaged evangelistically right now that I, not, lost guys, non-believers, with whom I have had to go and ask their, for, for their forgiveness for not acting like a Christian at times. And of course, they look at me like a confused puppy, like, what do you mean? The reality is I have not acted like my Savior at times. And I've had to ask their forgiveness But not only must we live the gospel, we must proclaim it. We must proclaim it with words. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Not only is it necessary to use words, but but, but conversion does not take place apart from words. The gospel must be preached. Friends, don't believe the lie that that you can evangelize your neighbor exclusively with a demonstration of your life. You must use words. Now, let me make a shameless plug here for just a second. Sunday, April the 8th, I'm going to begin teaching an evangelism class in the basement, 9 o'clock, during our 9 o'clock Bible study hour, Sunday school hour. would encourage you to come uh, if you're interested in learning more about how you can share your faith, learn more about how you can be salt and light to your neighbors. There's a sign-up sheet out in the lobby. We'd love to know who's coming so we can make adequate preparations and make the right number of copies, uh, but would love for you to join me there uh, if you're interested in engaging your neighbors with the gospel. Each of us has a unique sphere of influence as well. I mean, you, you have interests uh, that are unique to you. Uh, you work at a place that not everyone works at. You frequent places that not everyone else frequents. You have a sphere of influence, a sphere of relational influence 
And we're called to use that influence as a means for proclaiming the gospel. Let me give you an illustration here. For me, it's bicycling. It is, for me, a, a means of, of exercise, but I don't have the, the opportunity to come to work every day and work with non-Christians. I sit in an office in a row of pastors all week long. And so if I'm not intentional evangelistically, I don't share the gospel. And so for me, my primary ministry is my primary sphere of influence. It's those guys, those six or eight guys that I spend the most time with outside of my own family each week. And you can have phenomenal conversation on a bicycle, by the way. Once you get outside of the city limits and get out in the county and you can ride side by side, you can have phenomenal. I've had wonderful gospel conversations sitting on a bicycle. Use your sphere of influence. Those people with whom you're relationally connected that share, share your interests, go to the same places, like the same things that you like, start there. Because there's a common ground. Use those relationships as a springboard for the gospel. We want to strive for gospel intentionality as a church. Listen, hear, hear me clear. There is no impact without contact. There is no impact, no spiritual impact unless you're making intentional contact with lost people. Let me give you just a handful of ways here uh, that you can make intentional contact with your sphere of influence, namely those who live right around you, work right around you, share the same interests that you have. Thinking about your home, maybe you stay outside in the front yard a little longer while you're watering your yard. Thinking out loud here. How about walking your dog regularly around the same time in your neighborhood? How about sitting on the front porch and letting your kids play in the front yard? How about passing out baked goods, bread, cookies, brownies, etc. to your neighbors? How about inviting your neighbors over for dinner? Or attending and participating in a homeowner's association if you have one in your neighborhood? How about attending parties or backyard functions that you're invited to by your neighbors? How about having a food drive or a shoe drive or a coat drive in the winter amongst those relationships in your neighborhood? How about an art swap? Maybe some of the, the things on your walls you're getting a little tired of seeing and so uh, you encourage those in your neighborhood to come over for coffee and sweets and to bring a piece of art that they're ready to exchange. And you have an art exchange, and you use that as a way to build relationships so that you can share the gospel. I'm just thinking out loud here, guys. How about grow a garden and give out extra produce to your neighbors? Neither Jody nor I have a green thumb, so that one doesn't work for us. How about have an Easter egg hunt in your neighborhood? or even in your yard, or combining your yard and your neighbor's yard and inviting your neighbors to come be a part? How about a summer barbecue? You provide the meat and you invite your neighbors to bring a side or dessert. How about hosting a sports watching party, or a coffee and dessert night, or organize and host ladies, uh, a ladies' night? Jody did this when we lived in Evansville. And it was neat. There were probably eight or ten ladies uh, who once every couple of months, it was a great way for, for, for us guys, uh, and this was 
me and then lost guys as well on, on our little block uh, to spend time out front with the kids as they were riding their bikes and, and enjoying playing with each other while, while mamas went away and got a cup of coffee and, and got a little bit of downtime and a little bit of quiet time and a little bit of mom time. Uh, what about that? A ladies' night out. That's pretty easy to organize. M- most moms, most ladies would jump on that opportunity if presented to them. How about starting a walking or a running group in your neighborhood? How about hosting a play date weekly for other stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home parents in your neighborhood? How about organizing a carpool from your neighborhood? How about volunteering or coaching a little league or a sports team? I know many of you do that. I, the, the picture I have in my mind most recently, because I saw pictures on Facebook, is that of uh, Pastor uh, Ben and uh, Dustin Powell, one of our deacons, coaching their daughters in soccer. It's a great way to rub shoulders with lost people. Or have a front yard ice cream party in the summer. I mean, we could go on and on and on. But there are creative ways that we can have contact with our neighbors so that we can use that contact as a means for spiritual impact. Number two on your outline is this. We believe that God has called us to intentionally reach the unreached people of the world with the gospel in strategic ways. We believe that God has called us as a local church to intentionally, that is on purpose, reach the unreached people of the world with the gospel in strategic ways. I'm going to be shorter here because we talked about this last week by and large. But the bottom line is this, friends. God is a God of the nations. The nations should be on our heart as a local church and as believers because they are on the heart of God. Think about the Great Commission which I would encourage you to memorize, by the way. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus, looking at his, at his disciples, said, guys, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I'll be with you to the very end of the age. God is the God of the nations, and we want to have the nations on our heart. One of the things that helps me is is to remember Revelation chapter 7, to remember that picture of the nations gathering around the throne, worshiping the Lord. A familiar passage to many of you. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, that's righteous, with palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. People from every tribe, nation, language group. And people group. Helps me to labor, thinking about the nations when I remember the end, laboring with the throne room imagery in my mind. And friends, we we have a special opportunity here in Cape in that the Lord has brought the nations to our backyard. You know, it's interesting when Christians don't go often throughout redemptive history, God has brought the nations to Christians. Now, uh, that, that is not an excuse for us to go, 
But we have a college campus in our backyard that has numerous international students from countries all across the world, some of which have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, what are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about that? I met with a young couple that became members of our church recently, just a little over a week ago in my office. And, and as we began talking about our vision as a church, they're, they're coming and saying, Eric, we, we realize that the nations are right here. Countries of the world are represented in our small community. What can we do to have an intentional, strategic impact? And so this young couple, with kids of their own, are thinking about intentional, strategic ways in which they can, can meet, befriend, and invite international students into their home so that international students can, can see an American family. You know, a lot of international students have, have never seen that. But so that, as they befriend them, they can begin to share the gospel with them. They can host Bible studies in their home. They can, can provide a meal in their home. It's not that difficult. Friends, what can we do to impact the nations? The nations are actually in our backyard here in Cape Girardeau. But how do we want to do that as a church? Three simple ways here. We want to pray. Pray for the nations. Friends, I would encourage you, if you don't own a copy of Operation World, get you a copy of Operation World. It's thicker than most of the books that I would encourage you to buy, but it's also a reference book. Okay? This book catalogs every country on the globe and tells you about that people group, tells you what they believe, what they hold dear, how you can pray for them. Get you a copy of Operation World and begin to pray through it. Pray through it with your families. Expose your kiddos to the nations. It's a great resource for doing that. We want to pray for the nations. R.A. Torrey once said, the man or woman at home who prays often has as much to do with the effectiveness of the missionary on the field and consequently with the results of his or her labors as the missionary does. Are we praying for the nations? Are we praying for the nations? Secondly, we want to give or we want to send missionaries We're getting ready to send two missionaries, two missionary families from our own church, the Pierces and the Schraders, to the nations, to unreached language groups, to befriend them and to share the gospel in hopes that a church would be established that can begin to teach and preach the gospel in those nations' own language group. We want to send them. Are you engaged individually, as families, in giving, in supporting a missionary? If not, I would encourage you to do so. I can, I can give you today the, 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 the names of some trusted missionaries with whom would be tickled to know that you were not only praying for them, but that you were interested in supporting them financially in their work of preaching the gospel. We want to be praying as a church. We want to be giving as a church. And then lastly, we want to be going as a church. Short-term missions trips. Longer-term missions trips. There's going to be some information forthcoming uh, in in the weeks to come about some, some missions trip opportunities. I want to encourage you to go. Go. 
We want to be praying, we want to be giving, and we want to be going. The only other alternative, friends, is to disobey. The only other alternative to praying, giving, and going is to disobey. Number three on your outline, we'll spend the rest of our time here this morning, is this. We believe that God has called us as a local church to intentionally reach the next generation with the gospel and to equip that generation to reach the generation that follows. We believe wholeheartedly that God has called us to intentionally, strategically, on purpose, reach the next generation with the gospel and then to equip them to reach the generation that comes after them. The next generation is very much on the heart of God. Listen to this, Psalm 78, 1 through 7. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation. Tell them the glorious deeds of the Lord and of his might and of his wonders that he has done. He has established, God has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he has commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. That children yet unborn might hear. Psalm 78, 1 through 7. The next generation is very much on the heart of God. How about Psalm 145? This is David speaking. He says, I will extol you or I will praise you, my God and my King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and great and unsearchable is he. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare of your mighty acts. One generation. It is the responsibility of this generation to commend the mighty acts and deeds of the Lord to the subsequent coming generation. If you have your Bibles this morning, which we always encourage you to bring your Bible to corporate worship, I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles Chapter 31. For the most part, we know that King Hezekiah was one of the few good kings to rule over the people of Judah. The writer of 2 Chronicles, which was presumably Ezra, writes this of Hezekiah. In 2 Chronicles, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 31, 20, and 21. Look at verses 20 and 21. This is what the writer of 2 Chronicles writes about Hezekiah. Hezekiah did throughout all Judah... And he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. 
Now, what do we know about King Hezekiah? Well, King Hezekiah was the son of wicked King Ahaz. And after the death of his father, Hezekiah came in and he absolutely cleaned house. Hezekiah removed pagan altars. He destroyed the temple of idols. He reopened the doors of the temple in Jerusalem, which had been closed by his wicked father. He reinstated the Levitical priesthood. He reinstituted the Passover. He trusted God during the days of the great and terrifying Assyrian invasion. And as a result, God defeated the massive Assyrian army on his behalf. Sweeping revival came to Judah under Hezekiah's faithful, God-fearing leadership. And it wasn't long after the Lord defeated the Assyrian army that Hezekiah became terminally ill. In 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1, Isaiah tells Hezekiah that he needed to get his things in order and prepare to die. What's it like when you get that news? Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, hey, get your things in order, get your household in order, for you're getting ready to die. Hezekiah prayed, and he wept bitterly, and he prayed to the Lord that he might be healed, and God in his faithfulness answered his prayer and extended Hezekiah's life 15 years. This is all going somewhere. Just track with me, friends. But soon after his healing, Hezekiah made a serious mistake. Having heard that Hezekiah was ill, the king of Babylon sent letters and a gift to Hezekiah, and in his foolish pride, Hezekiah welcomed the enemy in and showed him all of the treasure house, showed him all of his silver, all of his gold, all of his spices, all of his precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing that Hezekiah did not parade in front of them. And so Isaiah comes and Isaiah rebukes Hezekiah for this act and prophesies that the king of Babylon would soon come and take everything from Hezekiah, including some of Hezekiah's own descendants, some of Hezekiah's own sons. And despite Hezekiah's faithfulness, the writer of the book of Kings mentions one detail of Hezekiah's life that leaves a chilling mark upon his legacy. And here's what I want you to get this morning. Hezekiah was a great king, came and turned things upside down, walked with the Lord, was faithful, trusted the Lord, obeyed the Lord. But there's one thing that mars his legacy in Scripture. Turn with me in your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 20. I want to show this to you. 2 Kings chapter 20. Beginning in verse 16. Then Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, said to Hezekiah, this is right after he, he, opens, he opens his home and lets the enemy come in and see all of his treasure. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house And that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. In other words, you're getting ready to lose everything. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. 
For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Friends, that statement is a tragedy for the next generation. That statement is a tragedy for the next generation. Why not, Hezekiah said. What does it matter if everything is taken away from me, including some of my own sons? If it has impact on the next generation, if today there's peace and security. You see, Hezekiah only focused on the present, and sadly, within a generation, the kingdom was lost. Friends, what I would say to you from this text here is, as a church, we want to reject Hezekiah's lax attitude toward the next generation. We want to be very intentional when it comes to the next generation. I want to show you one more account here of what can happen in only one generation if we fail, if we fail to preach the gospel and entrust the gospel to the next generation. Turn in your Bible to Judges, chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Verses 6 through 14. Much like Hezekiah, Joshua was a steadfast and a, 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 a resolute man. He was Moses' second in command. And after Moses' death, he, Joshua, ended up leading Israel into the promised land. You see, it was what happened after Joshua's death that was devastating. This is what can happen in one generation's time, if we fail to teach the next generation of the greatness and goodness and mightiness and majesticness and splendor of our God. Samuel writing here in Judges, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 2. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the work of the Lord and all that he had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim in the north mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation. Here's the, here's the second subsequent generation. There arose, arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or who did not know the work which he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. They abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of their peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the land of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Now, that's a tragic story, friends. Joshua himself was a great man, and he modeled in many respects what walking by faith looked like. Under his leadership, a whole generation of Israelites served the Lord and subsequently flourished. 
But Samuel tells us that Joshua died at the age of 110. He writes, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, on all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for them. And then Joshua dies at 110 years old. You see, while the memory of God's greatness and faithfulness to Israel was alive and known, the people of Israel maintained their devotion to God. But tragically, that knowledge of God's greatness and faithfulness to Israel failed to be passed on to the next generation. In verse 10, Samuel writes this, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And Samuel goes on to tell us, or to tell us what happened as a result. Look at verse 11. That subsequent generation did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served idols. Look at verse 12. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They embraced the gods of the people around them. Look at verses 13 and 14. They angered the Lord, and he gave them over to destruction and ruin at the hands of plunderers and their surrounding enemies. And so, friends, what can we conclude from this account? What can we conclude from this account? Well, I think we can clearly see that when God's greatness, power, and faithful provision are known, embraced, and honored, worship is preserved, faith is nourished, and obedience flourishes. We can also clearly see that where an exalted view of God is not held high or even abandoned by parents and spiritual leaders, it leads not only to unbelief and rebellion, but to destruction for future generations. Parents, if I don't have your attention already, let me, let me have you hear what I'm about to say. We all, including our children, are worshipers. God has made us and designed us to worship. The question is not if we will worship. The question is not if our children will worship. The question is who or what will we worship and who or what will our children worship? You catch that? If we fail as parents and as spiritual leaders, as a local church, a family of families, fail to pass on the greatness of God to subsequent generations, it will mean destruction and ruin for future generations. Because we're made to be worshipers. And our children will worship. The question is, what will they worship, and who will they worship? If we fail to teach our children, which is a never-ending task, by the way, of the greatness of God, and we fail to exalt and cultivate a vision for God that is worthy of our children's worship, our children and subsequent generations will worship themselves. We already see it happen. If we fail to cultivate and to hold high a biblical vision of the greatness of God in front of our children and to tell them and to teach them over and over and over again, then they'll just become worshipers of self. The generation, the next generation, must be on our heart as a local church. It is our unconditional duty and privilege to teach our children about the nature, the character, and the attributes and the saving work of God, so that the next generation will repent, believe, worship, and pass on the gospel to subsequent generations. And so how do we do that? Let me land the plane here in one minute. We want to teach our children, here as a local church and at home, we want to teach them the word in creative contexts. 
labor, strive, work to teach them the word in creative ways. I think Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, gives us some creative ways. We're to teach them diligently, teach our children diligently. We're to talk to them when we sit in the house and when we walk by the way and when we lie down and when we rise. In other words, use every opportunity. Every opportunity is a teachable opportunity. Every moment is a teachable moment. Bind God's word as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, put them in visible places as the word visible to our children. We want to teach the word in creative contexts. We want to model the word in everyday circumstances. We can teach all day long, but if our lives aren't modeling what we're teaching, we are a massive contradiction to the next generation. And we will fail. We will. We want our lives and what we teach and preach to be congruent. We want to teach the word in creative context and then model the word in everyday circumstances. And then we want to pray that the word takes up root in their heart. And then lastly, we want to celebrate evidences of faith and nurture obedience. Pray that God's word, as it's taught, takes up root in their heart, that it grows, that it falls on on warm soil, receptive soil, and that it begins to grow. And then we want to celebrate evidences of grace, celebrate evidences of faith, and we want to nurture obedience in our children. Let me wrap it up by just a recap very quickly. Our vision as a local church is simply this. We exist, Cape Bible Chapel exists, to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission to make and multiply disciples of Christ in our neighborhoods, among the nations, and of the next generation. Let me give you a quick recap here before we pray of those we believe statements, which you will see come directly from our vision statement. We started two weeks ago. We believe that the, that the gospel or the cross should be at the center of everything that we do. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. Secondly, we believe that God has designed us to live and minister within a community of like-minded believers. We're not autonomous. We're doing life together. That's community. Third, we believe that exuberant worship is the goal of our lives and the fuel of our ministry. Fourth, we believe that every Christian is privileged and obligated to live out the Great Commission. Fifth, we believe that every Christian has been called to spiritually reproduce their lives into the lives of others. We believe that God has called us to intentionally reach our neighborhoods by living and proclaiming the gospel in winsome ways. We believe that God has called us to intentionally reach the unreached people groups of the world in strategic ways. And then lastly, we believe that God has called us to intentionally, 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 intentionally reach the next generation with the gospel, and equip them to pass it on to generations that are to come. That is our vision. The question is, how will you be a part? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, help us in the coming weeks as we uh, continue to try to flesh out and to massage our vision into the various ministries here at the chapel uh, we, we, we don't want our vision to die a thousand deaths just because it's printed on paper or because it's, it's on uh, emails or because it's on t-shirts or the like. We want to uh, embody it. We want to embrace it. And God, I pray that uh, the chapel members would, would see themselves as being a part of our vision, would, would get in the vehicle of this vision and would minister right alongside of us for your glory, Jesus Christ. We pray these things. Amen.